We're carrying on our uh, series uh, in Ecclesiastes this evening, and we've got to uh, chapter 9 that we read. So if you want to uh, find that again, uh, it's uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 9, and it's on page 593. And uh, what are you in that? I don't know whether you've ever been paintballing. Uh, it's not my favourite thing I've ever done, I must admit. I'm a bit of a risk-adverse person, so running around trying to avoid getting shot is... Uh, well, avoid getting shot is good for me, but... Uh, not getting shot, but um, I did do it once or twice uh, on uh, people's various stag do's, and uh, my first experience was I wasn't quite, I wasn't quite sure how, uh, how much it would hurt, and um, so I decided that I would take the strategy of hiding uh, as a sniper in bushes, and uh, it was a game where they kind of, we had to protect an area and they would come into the area, uh, so I just hid there uh, for probably about half an hour until I realised that actually everything was happening over there, and I hadn't fired one single uh, shot. The next one, we kind of swapped over, and we had to go and uh, catch their flag, so we had to kind of move onto their territory, and there was no hiding then, because you had to move. And it was very interesting, actually, because um, if a shot hits you, but it doesn't burst, you're technically still in the game. If it bursts, and you get covered in paint, then you're out. I thought I'd been shot, because I felt it, so I was going to stop. But everybody else said, no, no, carry on, and I was actually the last one left. And because I thought I was already dead, it gave me this renewed sense of, uh, of vigour, and I actually went and was able to, to catch the flag uh, and to win. And I want you to hold those two images of me, if you like, in your head, and hopefully it will make sense uh, as we look at this chapter, uh, the different way that we can approach these things. So we're going to look, as we, as we do, we're going to go through this uh, chapter 9, and we're going to start at verses uh, 1 to 3. And... Um, Verse 2, if you look at it, says, all things come alike to all. And uh, we know that as creator, the lives of all living beings are in God's hands, and he ordains what happens to them. Job 12, 9 to 10 says, who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In whose hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind? Matthew 10, 29, Jesus said, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin, and not one of them falls to the ground apart from your Father's will? And it's true that God is merciful and gracious to all his creation. We read it in that Psalm 149, verse 9, the Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. And that actually includes his enemies as well. Luke 6, verse 35 he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Matthew 5.45, he, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So God holds all things in his hands and he blesses all things. He's merciful to all his creation. But he also allows adversity to happen to all, even to his children. And the classic example, obviously, is Job, Job 2.10. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? I think I've said this before. I actually wrote that on my uh, a little poster on my door during COVID. Uh, as I left uh, the house to go to work, I just thought, well, whatever comes my way, the Lord allows both good and adversity even to his children. Job 13.15, and this is an incredible statement. Though he slay me, yet Will I trust him? You see, the prosperity gospel is false. God doesn't promise that his children will be healthy, wealthy, and free from harm. It's just not true. You've only got to look at the lives of the apostles to see that it's not true. 
Therefore, as Solomon says, you cannot tell whether somebody is a child of God or an enemy of God just by looking at what happens in their life. You can't say, well, all these people are healthy and happy and what? And wealthy, so they're all the, uh, the blessed of God, and these people are having a terrible time, so they must be God's enemies. It doesn't work like that. The mercy of God is overall. So God has the life of the whole world in his hands, but his friends and enemies are in his hands in different ways. As God's children, we are safe in his hands now and for all eternity. Jesus' pierced hands have reached down, they've saved us. They've given us eternal life. In this life, they provide our every need. They comfort us. They catch every tear. They strengthen us. They protect us. They lovingly discipline us and keep us from falling. They will raise us up on the last day. They'll shield us from the wrath to come. And they'll welcome us into his presence. Isaiah 49, 16. I have inscribed you on the palm of my hands. Psalm 31, 15, my time are in your hands. John 10, 28, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Isaiah 41, 10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. 1 Peter 5, 6 to 7, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that, you may exalt, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. So the lives of God's enemies are also in his hands. But even though he may be gracious and merciful to them while uh, during their time on earth, his hands will eventually execute judgment and wrath on them and banish them to hell. Isaiah 9:12 His anger is not turned away but his hand is outstretched Ex- Exodus 15:6 Your right hand O Lord has dashed the enemy in pieces Matthew 25:31 Sorry Hebrews 10:31 It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God Matthew 25:31 following When the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. He will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me. You cursed into the everlasting fire prepared prepared for the devil and his angels. Verses 3 to 6, you look in verse uh, verse 4, a living dog is better than a dead lion. Now dogs weren't uh, weren't the kind of worship creatures that they are in this society. They didn't go uh, around wearing uh, little cardigans and uh, whatever they do now, being pushed in pushchairs. They're actually seen as a, a kind of a despised animal, a lowly animal. Uh, back in Solomon's day, but he says that a living dog is better than a dead lion. Well, what does he mean by this? Well, you'll see verse 3, we're all born into sin. We are totally depraved, soaked right through in every area with the madness of sin. And as has been said before, it doesn't 
Total depravity doesn't mean that the worst person, we're the worst person we could ever be. It just means that every part of us is soaked in sin. We are born in sin. It's a state, not just the actions that we do. But just as blessing and adversity happen to all, so too will all die physically as the wages of sin is death. And you'll see in verse 5, deep down, we all know that we will die, but people respond very differently to this knowledge, and you'll see this all around you. Some people live very cautiously, uh, trying to stay healthy, trying to kind of postpone death as long as possible. Some people seem to take the opposite view. They think, well, we're all going to die, so let's just recklessly live for pleasure and uh, wealth, and uh, then, you know, I'll think about death later. Some people convince themselves that they will cease to exist at all after death, so it doesn't really matter how they live because they're just going to be kind of annihilated or they'll just go in the ground and that's it. Other people sign to seek entry into all sorts of different versions of paradise and all sorts of different rules and regulations to try and get there. Or they uh, convince themselves that the reincarnation, that they'll get a second chance at life on earth. But if you look at verse 5, Solomon is very clear. We only have one opportunity to live life under the sun. We must therefore make the most of being alive because the way we choose to live and the decisions we make in this life will determine what happens after we die. It's only in this life we have the opportunity to hear and respond to the good news of the gospel in repentance, faith and obedience. We will still exist after death, but there's no second chance. Hebrews 9:27. It is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. So even if we feel like that dis- small, despised animal, animal, that dog in Solomon's day, we have more share and influence in this world now than any dead lion, any kind of great figure of history. You know, we are those chosen by God for this appointed time. We have more share in what is done now here in Penzance than any great lion that is now uh, dead and gone. So we can accomplish much of eternal importance while we're still alive. We can use our abilities and knowledge to benefit others. We can share our faith with them. We can speak truth. We can serve and honour God by becoming more like Jesus. As Christians, knowing that we will die gives us hope that a better life awaits us. We read in Ecclesiastes 7, didn't we, that the day of death is better than the day of birth, and truly that it's so true for Christians. The day of birth, we're born into a world of sin to struggle with sin. The day of death for a Christian is the day when we're released from that, where we go to be with the Lord. So whatever we struggle with will not be forever. So this knowledge frees us up to face (coughs) death without fear or a need to postpone it. We can live for God's glory and purpose with peace, joy, contentment and hope. We don't need to hide in self-preservation like I did when I was crouching in those bushes. But we can be brave and self-sacrificial. Considering yourself as already dead enables us to live for our mission that God has given us. It's like, again, me with that paintball. When I thought I was dead already, it gave me that courage just to keep going. Keep pressing on. We don't need to be those that hide in self-protection and fear. Verses 7 and 8. There's this wonderful phrase, God 
has already accepted your works. Now, this doesn't mean it's a works-based gospel. It doesn't mean that we're saved by the works that we do, that somehow we're so good that God has just let us in, uh, that we've made ourselves pure and perfect. It all comes back to Jesus. As Christians, we are, we've already been accepted by God because of Jesus' perfect life, lived on our behalf, and his death for our sins. So we don't have to prove ourselves worthy by our works or successes. We don't have to prove ourselves to ourselves. We don't have to prove it to anyone else, not even God. Why? Because we are already accepted in the beloved. Colossians 3.3, 3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So what does Solomon say? Well, knowing that our works, knowing that we have already been accepted by the Lord, means that we can be content and joyful with our lives, just as they are, and enjoy the small things in life. You know, we've seen this little refrain time and time again, haven't we? Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart. Knowing that we're already accepted by God means that we can enjoy those simple things. We can enjoy the life that we have. See, many people are so discontent, anxious, and sad because they are not what they feel they ought to be or should be. They think that they deserve better or somehow they're missing out. But as children of God, we can be content and joyful as we are because we're complete in Christ, Colossians 2.10. Knowing that uh, we have been accepted by God also means that we can live joyfully with our wife or our husband whom we love. You'll see that in verse 9. Being complete in Christ means that we don't have to feel that we're missing out, that somehow we could find somebody better. You know, we can create a life together with our partner and be content. We don't have to keep up with the Joneses. We don't have to feel that we, uh, we could do better or uh, feel sort of insecure about ourselves. You know, modern media is very dangerous, isn't it? Because it kind of promotes this idea of perfect relationships, even perfect sex. But those things don't exist. They're just a fantasy that people are chasing. We're called to make the most of what we have. And it's one of those verses where um, you think, oh, it's a wonderful verse. You know, you quote it on uh, cards. I know I've done it uh, before when you send a wedding card. Live joyfully with the wife whom you love all the days of your... And then you go, oh, hang on a minute. Vain life, which he has given you under the sun. All your days of vanity. And you think, oh, dear. And I know I myself have shortened uh, that verse and just... Uh, put, live joyfully with a wife uh, whom you love all the days of your life. I've kind of shortened it. But actually, that, the um, talk there of vanity and vain things doesn't mean that it's pointless, doesn't mean that it's worthless. As if you remember, when we looked at the first chapter uh, of Ecclesiastes, we, see, we saw that the Hebrew for that word vain can mean short. So I think that's what he's referring here. He just means live with a wife or husband that you love, all the days of your short life. Why make the most of it? Why? Because it's short. It really does go quickly. And when he talks about a portion in life, again, in verse 9, he's not saying, oh, you know, a measly little portion. No, the Hebrew has the sense of this, uh, that it's, it's God-given, that it's God's gift to you. So you can see, you know, on the one hand, you could look at it and go, oh, you know, live with your wife because life is meaningless and it's short and, you know... Uh, your portion is so miserly compared to other people, and that can make you feel despondent and make you envious of others. But that's not what it means. 
It means accept the gift that God has given you and make the most of it because the time is short. So rejoice. God has given you someone to share the joys and struggles of this life with. In all the confusion and uncertainty, God has given you someone tangible to love and be loved by. And marriages are, uh, are reminders of God's love for us and they're a witness for others of God's love for us. They truly are a channel of blessing from the Lord. So live joyfully with the wife whom you love. And in verse 10, you'll see that being complete in Christ, being accepted in the beloved, means that whatever our hand finds to do, we do it with all our might. We can enjoy the work that God has given us and not feel that somehow we should be doing something better, something uh, more worthy or more uh, impressive. Now, that could be referring to work that you've got, if you, if you work, or it could be referring to things that you do in the church or looking after ill relatives. Knowing that we are accepted means that we don't have to impress anybody with a higher status job. We don't have to impress everybody with all of these wonderful things that we can stick on Facebook. We're free from all of that. Whatever is in front of us, no matter how mundane and pointless or worthless it might seem in the eyes of other people, if God has given that to us, if that's the work that he's given us to do, then we can rejoice in it. We don't have to think, uh, find something better. We don't have to be envious of other people. We can be content and do it with all the skill and knowledge and strength that we can muster. See, we shouldn't be lazy or half-hearted waiting for better opportunities. I know I've done it in the past. I think, oh, well, I don't really like my life as it is, so I'm kind of just going to sit back and maybe even kick my heels in and just wait for some better opportunity to arise. Now, actually, what we need to do is make the best of what we're given. You know, if we use what we're given to the best of our abilities, then we'll be given more. Not just sitting there proudly thinking, well, this is beneath me. Thomas Edison, famous inventor, said, opportunity is missed by most people because it's dressed in overalls and looks like work. You have no need to be envious of others. We all have different parts to play and all our jobs are important. Life is short and we're called to make the most of it by working hard for the glory and purpose of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3, 17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verses 11 and 12 are a little bit the same, similar theme to verses 1 to 3. Time and chance happens to all. As the Olympic motto goes, it's good to try to be faster, higher, stronger. And it's certainly good to be wise, but it doesn't guarantee success. On paper, fast people should win races. Strong people should win fights. Wise people should get rich. Skillful people should become famous. But life events happen to everyone, and so this is not always true. Runners can fall. Fighters can get injured or outsmarted. The wise may be ignored, and the skilled may not be in the right place at the right time. Success is often due to circumstance and opportunity, and so can appear unjust. You only have to look at modern-day celebrities to know that the cream doesn't always rise to the top. 
So we must use our abilities to the best we can, but we mustn't trust in them. But in God, we trust the giver, not the gifts. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. And it's also true that God can grant success to whoever he wants to display his power, not ours. So don't write yourself off if you don't feel fast, strong, wise or skilled. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, that no flesh may glory in his presence. <coughs> it's wise to think about and plan our lives. It's not bad to have plans for the future, but Solomon reminds us in verse 12, none of us really knows the future. All we can do is base our plans on, on what we know or what we think might happen. But calamity can be just around the corner. So we must be prepared to have our plans changed. I know this is a, a, I'm not very good at this at all. I like to think I have control of things and that when plans change, I tend to sulk. Um, even to the point of going to a shop, if I've not got what I want, I go in a bit of a sulk. So this is something I've got to work on because none of us know, do we? We don't know what is going to happen in the future. And neither should we arrogantly think that we can determine the future. No matter how much you think you can control things, no matter what plans you put in place, something can always go wrong and often something completely unexpected. James 4, 13 to 16. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy, sell, make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapour that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. And finally, verses 13 to 18. Wisdom is better than weapons of war. Great things can be accomplished by gentle wisdom. Small men can beat bigger men with techniques and tactics. You'll see there it talks about a, a poor wise man who saved a city. <clears throat> but often the sad truth is that it's the loud, it's the big, it's the strong that are remembered. This is especially true when wealth and class come into play. Poor people's talents are often overlooked in society uh, in favour of the rich or well-connected people who probably uh, often have less talent. How true is verse 17 in politics and media today? Words of wisdom should be heard, but often we listen to the shout of a ruler of fools. Wisdom is always the better way. But how often we see that the selfishness and aggression of one person's actions can be so easily spoiled, so much good work. How often do we see, you know, I remember there was, um, I don't know if you remember, there was a, like a community garden that had been planted and somebody had gone and just uprooted all of the vegetables. You know, how much work of wise and kind people can be undone just by one foolish act. So what can we say in conclusion to this chapter? Well, we started off by saying that the same things may happen to all of us in this life. 
But that's not true in the next. Your life is in the hands of God. But will those hands be hands of blessing or judgment? When you die and face that uh, day of judgment, will God look favourably on you? Not because of your or your hard work and effort, but because you've trusted in the Lord Jesus. He has paid for your sin. His blood has cleansed you. Are you trying to justify yourself? Do you think on that day that somehow your good works will outweigh your bad? Or that you're not as bad as other people who you can look down upon and say were worse than you? That's not how it works. The only way that we can be pure and blameless in God's sight is by trusting in Jesus. Yes, you may be prospering in this life. You may think that things are going wonderfully for you. You may be happy and content. But that means nothing. God is gracious and merciful, even to his enemies. So this life is so important. We heard that a living dog is better than a dead lion. So we must make the most of our time here on earth, not to selfishly pursue our own interests, not to live for ourselves, but to live for God, to love him and to serve him. See, this period we spend on earth truly is vain. It truly is short compared to eternity. And it will be meaningless unless we live it for the Lord. If you're a Christian, the wonderful news of the gospel is that God in Christ has already accepted you and your works. And this frees you up to enjoy the small things, not to have to live wanting, wishing that you were someone else, not have to wish that you had what other people have had. You can enjoy the small things in life. It doesn't mean that you can't get more or, or can't change or whatever, but you can be content now. Last time we learned, didn't we, that uh, contentment should be the foundation of our lives that we build upon. It's not somehow a roof that we just put on when we think the walls are high enough. They'll never be high enough. We can enjoy the small things. We can live joyfully with the wife or husband whom we love. And we can do whatever our hands finds to do with all our strength. Time and chance happen to all of us. So we mustn't trust in the security of wealth. We mustn't trust in our lives as they are. We mustn't trust in our own abilities, our own strength. You know, I'm sure you're finding it as well as I'm finding it. As you get older, those abilities get less. Your strength gets less. If we trust in that, we're going to stop worrying when we get older. But we don't trust in the gifts. We trust in the giver. We trust in the Lord not in the resources or abilities that he's given us. And finally, wisdom is better than weapons of war. So let's keep praying for wisdom and God will give it to us. Let's keep ask, uh, acting wisely and speaking truth, even though fools seem to flourish, even though they seem to be the loudest and the people that are listened to. We should keep whispering truth, keep shouting truth, keep praying for wisdom, keep living for the glory of God. Amen.